Hey everybody, good morning. I hope you're coming off of having a good week with uh, your family. I know we've had a pretty heavy week and we continue to pray and we've had some really great conversations, a lot of learning going on and listening um, to what's going on and how we as a church can meet certain needs. And so I want to welcome you and I want to ask you to keep praying for all of that. And I don't know about you, but I think we kind of need a, a pick-me-up. We need a reminder of some good news this week and, and for God to come and just encourage us with His Word. So I'm excited to jump in this morning to a brand new sermon series we're going to get into. Before we do that, I want to remind you again, uh, we have made plans to gather together as a church again. And we, we're aiming, we're prayerfully aiming to do an outdoor service right outside the doors that are behind me, right outside there. And we're going to have an outdoor service on July the 5th, unless things change. Uh, And then on July the 12th, we're going to meet right back here at New Hope for Services. We're going to get you all the information, tell you the precautions that we're going to be taking, going to tell you the student ministry and children's ministry plans. Uh, But right now, that's our goal. We're praying about it, uh, but we're just people. And so we're just praying and planning to the best of our ability. If things change, we'll keep you up to date and we're going to let you know. Let's pray this morning and we'll jump in and learn from God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being so good. God, you are awesome, and we love you, and we thank you for being so good. And God, when we look around at our world and the the hate that is being passed around and the, the difficulty and the pain and the suffering, God, in the midst of it all, those of us that follow Jesus, we understand that even when life is not good to us, God, we can still look and say that you are good. And God, we love you. We thank you so much for uh, the opportunity we have to study your word together. I thank you for the blessing it is to continue to be able to preach your word, even though we can't gather together. And God, we look forward to being together again. Would you speak to us this morning, Father? And we ask for that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, as we get started this morning, I I, want to share with you, I don't know if your experience has been like mine, but my experience as as a preacher, as a minister, and really just as a Christian living in our culture is that I have found with a lot of people, this book, the Bible, can be pretty intimidating. And it's intimidating for a lot of reasons. Not that it creates fear, though maybe it does do that for some. But then when they open it up, particularly the Old Testament, it can be a little overwhelming. I mean, you read a lot of rules and commands and regulations, and you're not quite sure how to respond. Do I obey this? Do I not obey this? What does it mean? How does that even fit into what's going on in the story? And it can be a little bit confusing. And so that's why we're going to do this sermon series, Jesus on Every Page. But the intimidation that comes from the scripture, let's illustrate, I read a story this week that I thought really captured this well. It's a story of a campus minister. So he's working on a college campus, working with college students doing ministry over in North Carolina. Well, he had a Chinese graduate student. So a student that came from China is in their campus ministry. And this student had literally never heard the name of Jesus, did not know who Jesus was. And so this campus minister introduces him to to Jesus and begins to teach him about it. And this kid was just excited. And he jumped in and began to study. We fast forward that semester to Christmas break. And this this student had become a Christian. And he's getting ready to go back to China to uh, be back with his family for this extended break from college. And right before he leaves, the campus minister gives him a gift. And he says, hey, I want you to have this gift. And this gift, uh, it's, it's a Bible in English and in Mandarin so that you can read the Bible when you're home by yourself. I want you to be reading. When you get back, we'll talk about all the different things that you read. Well, he leaves. He goes on his break. And around New Year's Eve or New Year's Day, the turn of the new year, this campus minister receives a text message from that student in China that says the deed is done. Not knowing what he meant, he asked for more detail. Well, apparently this, this student earlier that day had been reading, he'd come across Genesis chapter 17. And in Genesis 17, God gives Abraham a command. He says, hey, the sign of the covenant between me and you is that you will be circumcised in your foreskin. Well, this student thought that that's a command he had to obey. And so he'd read it that, that morning. 
He'd got up and he'd walked into a clinic in China. And when it was finished, he texted uh, the campus minister back, home, back over in North Carolina and said, the deed is done. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear that, that just kind of blows my mind. I think it's hilarious. I think it's a couple things come to my mind. The first thing is I really admire this kid's passion for following the Lord. I mean, when he became a Christian, he went all out. I don't think that's a story the campus minister could use when he came back, though. I don't think the campus minister could come back and say, hey, everybody, um, I don't know to what extent you'd go to follow Jesus, but let me tell you what he did when he was on his break this Christmas. The other thing that comes to my mind, though, is that this book really can be intimidating. And it probably isn't hard to pick it up and to begin to read and to misinterpret certain things. When you open it up, do you just begin to, to listen and obey every single thing that you read? Maybe you've heard of the book. Uh, it's a, it's a, a best-selling book called The Year of Living Biblically. The author's name is A.J. Jacob. Now, he's not a Christian. He's actually uh, Jewish. And the way he describes himself is, he says, I'm Jewish in the same way that Olive Garden's an Italian restaurant. So, so not very devout. Well, he took up the project of uh, living out all the commands of the Bible for an entire year as best he possibly could. He started out by taking the Bible and writing out every single command that he could, handwriting all the commands of the Bible. When he was done writing out all the commands of the Bible, he then began to live it out. Look at some of the things that he did. He stopped wearing clothes that were made of mixed fibers. He's doing all of this in Manhattan, by the way, so just completely surrounded by people. In accordance with the Levitical law, he stopped shaving the edges of his beard. So his beard grew big and out, and he ended up looking like he could be on Duck Dynasty. He refused to shake hands with any woman that he thought might be ceremonially unclean. And then this one's my favorite. He would take little pebbles and fling pebbles at people without them noticing or trying so that they wouldn't notice in order to stone adulterers. <laughs> he did this for an entire year. It made for a good book, but... But it nearly destroyed his marriage. His wife said, if you don't stop doing this, I'm going to leave you. And I think, man, that's what a lot of people do with the Bible. They pick it up and they think, everything it says, I have to do it. I have to turn off my emotion. I just need to obey it. And what we do is we begin to read it completely disconnected from the bigger story of what God is trying to do in the Bible. And so this series that we're starting this summer, it's called Jesus on Every Page. And one of the goals so you would see that all the stories, all the commands, all the lists of names, everything that you read, everything in your Bible points to, it points to Jesus. You see, one of the mistakes that we make when we come to it is we think that we're the center of the story. Now, many people, they pick up the Bible and they think this is just a story about me. And so what we do is we take all these stories and we try to find ourselves in the story. We make ourselves the hero of the story. It makes for good motivational speeches, but it doesn't last and it fails because the Bible's not a story about you. The Bible's not a story about me. We're not the center of the story. It's the opposite. God is at the center of the story, and he puts himself at the center of the story as a baby named Jesus. I want to read to you from a gift that we hand out to all, these, all the families at New Hope that participate in a baby dedication. And this, this gift is intentional. For many years now, we've handed out this gift. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And many of you have this Bible sitting at your home right now. Uh, because you participated in a baby dedication here at New Hope where we pray over you and we give you this gift. Well, the gift's intentional. It's an intentional gift because this book will teach a child as they grow how to read the Bible, how to see Jesus on every page. But it's really good for the whole family. If you were to ask me, hey, where do I start? I get this Jesus, uh, seeing Jesus on every page. Where can I start to really see it? I would tell you, begin to read the Jesus Storybook Bible. It might sound a little elementary until you begin to see how well it's written. Let me read to you from the introduction as it kind of tells you uh, the heart behind where we're going 
in this series, Jesus on Every Page. It says this, God wrote, I love you. He wrote it in the sky and on the earth and under the sea. He wrote his message everywhere because God created everything in his world to reflect him like a mirror, to show us what he's like, to help us know him and to make our hearts sing. The way a kit kitten chases her tail, the way red poppies grow wild, the way a dolphin swims. And God put it into words too, and he wrote it in a book, a book called the Bible. Now, some people think the Bible is a book of rules, telling you what you should do and what you shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best, but the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. You see, the Bible is about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people that you should copy with your life. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but as you'll soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't really heroes at all. They make some big mistakes and sometimes even on purpose. They get afraid and they run away, and at times, they're downright mean. No, the Bible is, a book, is not a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the ones that he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about the story is it's true. There's a lot of stories in the Bible, but all of the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there's this baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He's like the missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly you can see the entire beautiful picture. And this is no ordinary baby. This is the child upon whom everything would depend. This is the child who would one day, but wait, our story starts where all good stories start, right at the very beginning. You see, the Bible, it's got 31,102 verses. It's got 1,663 commands, the laws in the Old Testament, commands in the New Testament. Forty different authors, over 3,200 different characters appear in the Bible. And whether it's the, the different verses or the commands or the authors, it's, it, all of it points to Jesus. I mean, the entire book points to him. And so this summer, I think, as we study this, some of you for the very first time are going to begin to flex a muscle that hasn't been flexed before. You're going to begin to read your Bible like it's this fresh new thing. And you're going to begin to see how all of these pieces connect to God's bigger story. And I'm excited for you to do that. Genuinely excited to have conversations with many of you around the connections you're seeing with Jesus on every single page. See, let me tell you why I think this is such an important series that we're going to enter into I don't think there's anything better you can do with your life than to meditate on the words of Scripture. I heard a story recently of um, a really well-known preacher, a guy that, man, he has preached all over the world. He's very well-known. His dad has dementia and Alzheimer's, and in his old age, he's beginning to see certain things come out that just aren't characteristic of the dad that he knew. And he would write, I've got about 20 years until I'm there myself. You know, maybe I won't get, but if I do, about 20 years. And what I want to come out there is what I'm storing in now. And so he is memorizing large chunks of Scripture because he understands what I hope that we all come to understand this summer. I mean, genuinely, the best thing you can do is to meditate deep on the words of Scripture so that when you need them the most, that's what comes out. And so that as you're in the Bible, you begin to see the big story that God's telling and where you fit in to that story. See, reading the Bible, it's the healthiest thing you can do. It's kind of like working out. Think about it. 
You don't work out one day and expect it to last for the rest of your life. You don't eat one healthy salad and expect it to last the rest of your life. Maybe some of you do, and that's part of the problem. You see, we work out, we get a rhythm of working out. We work out consistently so that we stay healthy. We have to eat healthy meals and watch what we eat so that we can continue to stay healthy. And the same thing's true with the Bible. Look, you're not putting your faith in the Bible. You put your faith in Jesus. But what the Bible does is it gives you the capacity for that faith to grow and to continue to stay healthy. And so we're going to launch into this series with a lot of expectation in the summer. And I know a lot of it's going to be online, but you can engage in so many different ways. And so we're excited to jump through uh, all these stories in, in the Old Testament, pointing you to see Jesus on every page. And the first stop on our journey this summer is Genesis chapter 22. But in order to understand Genesis 22, we really got to start in Genesis chapter 12. So if you have your Bible, I'm going to encourage you, go ahead and open it to Genesis chapter 12. And we're going to learn a little bit about a character in the Bible named Abram. A character in the Bible named Abram. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 says this. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing I will bless those who bless you and with those who dishonor you I will curse and in in you all the families of the earth will be blessed if you've been reading in your bible you you would pick up on hey this looks a lot like the story of Abram looks a lot like the story of Noah Uh, Abram looks a lot like Noah. If you remember in your Bible, in Noah's day, everybody in the world had got so corrupt and so evil that God almost had to, or he did, hit the reset button. I got to start all over. So he picked one family, this one family, and he formed everything around it. Well, in Genesis chapter 10 and 11, it tells the story of Noah's descendants and tells us that just after a short amount of time, they too got wicked and became idolaters. And so it's kind of implied in the text that the entire family were idolaters. And the final guy in this, in this line of people uh, is Terah. Terah has one son that he names Abram. We're going to call him Abraham because that becomes his name later on. He has one son that he names Abram, but there's a problem in the story. See, Abram, or Abraham, he's childless. He has no children to continue on the one godly line that belonged to the Lord in this family line. And so as you're reading this, you're thinking, man... Terah's name literally means moon, which is a Hebrew metaphor for the end. And so you're thinking, that's it, the story's over. Abram can't have any kids. He's too old. God's line has come to an end. God is going to kind of destroy the earth again. He's going to have to start all over. But God does something different. Instead of saying Project Humanity has failed, God calls Abram out of where he's living and does something miraculous with him. He tells him, Abram, if you will leave and trust me in faith, if you will journey with me, I'm going to bless all of the world. I'm going to bless the entire world through your offspring. Well, for Abraham, this is kind of confusing. I don't have a kid. I'm getting up there in years. I don't know how that's going to happen. But he trusts him. He says, from your line, this is very, and he, Abraham would have understood this, from your family line, the Messiah is going to come and he's going to save people. And just like Noah's ark physically saved all of his people, he's saying, from your line, I'm also going to rescue all of my people. And make salvation available to everybody. See, the blessing that he's talking about is the blessing of salvation. And what did Abraham have to do in order to, if you're reading the text, what did he have to do in order to accept this blessing? 
Well, the text tells us here that what he had to do is he had to leave everything that he had known. I mean, he had to leave his family. He had to leave his work. He had to leave his reputation. He had to leave his community. He had to leave everything he was comfortable with. And, and don't let it be lost on you here in the text, too, that he was not a young man. He did not just live here for a little while. He had spent a lifetime building up the life that he was living. And God says, now I want you to leave. And verse 4 tells us that he would have been 75 years old, which meant his wife would have been in her 60s. And by that time, you're reading the story and you're thinking, whatever God's going to do, I don't know what it is, but he's not going be able to provide a baby because those days are over. Baby planning was not a topic of conversation in Abraham's household. So Abraham leaves. He does it. The text tells us that he trusts God and he leaves and he goes on this journey. And then not knowing where he's going to go. In fact, the text, the text tells us that when he gets called out from where he's supposed to go, God doesn't even tell him where he's going. But he goes and he trusts God. And they go on this incredible journey. We're going to fast forward to chapter 22. And by this time, God has delivered for Abraham and his wife Sarah this miracle baby and they named the baby Isaac which means son of laughter because the Bible writers and everybody who's reading it knows that this entire situation is pretty funny I mean you think about it the year that year that Isaac was born and growing uh, for his birthday and for Sarah's birthday they both got diapers I mean the story doesn't seem to make sense but God showed up and God did what God said he was going to do and he proved himself over and over and over again Abraham. So now we fast forward uh, to chapter 22, and uh, we're going to go ahead and pick up the story in, in Genesis chapter 22, beginning uh, in verse 1. Here's what the text says. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. Abraham responds, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom he waited his whole life for, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. Now, after the initial shock of reading uh, these first few verses wears off on you, because it's pretty shocking. Like, am I really reading? Did God really say that? He wants me to go and he wants Abraham to go and sacrifice his, his only son that he had waited so long for. When the initial shock wears off on you, begin to pick up on some things here in the text. One is the similarities between what he's called to do in chapter 22 and what he was called to do in chapter 12. See, in both situations, he's called to go. God comes and he says to Abraham initially in chapter 12, I want you to go. I want you to leave the land of your fathers and go to a place that I'll tell you later on. I want you to go. I want you to leave. I want action. Here in chapter 22, he says, hey, after everything got comfortable and you're living a comfortable life and the blessing that I told you was going to come came and you're sitting comfortably in that blessing, now it's time to go. And he calls him out of comfort. He says, it's time for you to go again, just like he did in chapter 12. Second thing you notice is where he told him to go. He said, I'll, I want you to go, but I want you to go to a place I'll tell you about later. In chapter 12, he says, I want you to go, and I'll tell you where you're going later on, but I want you to go without even knowing where you're going. I want you to trust me even if you don't know the outcome. I want you to go even if you're not quite sure how to map out what's next. I just want you to take a step and trust me. And he does the same thing here. Take him to this land, and I'll tell you when you get there where exactly you're supposed to go to make this offering. And the third thing is that you have to offer something. In chapter 12, he asks him to offer everything in life. I want you to offer everything you've worked for, everything that you've built up. And then here, of course, he says, I want you to offer your only son. Now, before we go further here, uh, Tim Keller uh, is a, a well-known preacher and author, and he points out some interesting things here. The language that's used here to describe how God describes the relationship between Abraham and Isaac. He says, I want you to take your son whom you love. So there's an intimate connection here. 
But it's even deeper than that. It shows tones that uh, Abraham had come to allow Isaac to become his emotional center. There's tones of idolatry going on here. And so God in the text tells us this, that he's going to test him. He says, I'm going to put it to the test to make sure that, yes, you can love your son, but are you worshiping him? Is he the center of your emotional stability? And meaning, are you putting all of your faith and trust in something that may or may not be able to be there for you? Keller goes on to describe a good definition of, of what a God is. And he says this, God is the non-negotiable thing in your life. That's what your God is. It's the absolute non-negotiable. Meaning, uh, I can come, if, if I come to God and I say, hey God, I'm going to come and I'll worship you, but don't touch that. Don't take that. Don't mess with that. Well, then you're not really coming to God to worship him at all. What you're saying is, I don't mind following the God of the Bible, reading through this book, doing a lot of what it says, as long as the God of this book doesn't touch that, doesn't tell me to do that, doesn't tell me to go there. You see, when that's the case, you're not really worshiping God at all. You're allowing God to be a part of your life, but your real God is the thing that's non-negotiable in your life. And so God puts Abraham to the test to see, is Isaac the non-negotiable in your life, or am I? the non-negotiable in your life. Well, verse four tells us that he goes. The very next morning, he leaves on this journey. And if you're like me, you ask yourself, how did he do that? When I open this up and I read, I want you to go and offer your son on this mountain. In the very next verse, uh, verse four, it says, and he went, he went on this journey. And I think, how did you do that? I mean, I would be wrestling and struggling, but it's just like this fast-paced thing that's taking place. God comes, says, go do this. In verse four, he's going and doing it. And my story would probably be verse 40, if it even appeared. This would be a really difficult one for me. And I would have wrestled through this. And yet God has called Abraham and Abraham seems to go. And he goes really fast. And you're wondering, how did you do that? How are you willing to do this? And then all of a sudden in verse 6, everything begins to slow down. Look at chapter 22, verse 6. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on his son Isaac. And then he took the knife and he raised it up above him. Now, as he took the wood for the burnt offering, he placed it on Isaac, and he took the knife, and he, and he journeys up this mountain, and it's this fascinating interaction. So he has the knife, and he, he takes all of the difficult things, all the dangerous things, and he's going to carry it, the things for the uh, fire and the knife, and he just puts the, word with, uh, the wood on Isaac, and he tells him to go up the mountain. As he tells him to do this, did you notice, though, he keeps all the dangerous stuff for himself, and he begins to act like a father. There's this connection. This is not a disconnected dad who's just doing what he's told to do. This is a dad who's struggling the whole way up the mountain because he has an intimate relationship with his son. As the two of them go on, Isaac speaks up. And actually, this is the only time in the whole Bible where Isaac and Abraham, we actually get to see them talk to one another. And he says, Father, if you continue on in the story, look at how the narrator slows everything down. He says, Father, Abraham responds, yes, my son. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered. But my question is, how did Abraham answer? Put yourself in that situation. How do you answer that question? And he knew, but what did he say? What, what is it that gave him the ability to take that next step? What is it that pushed him up that terrible mountain? What is it that allowed him to continue to journey down this calling that God had placed on his life that was confusing and difficult? I mean, he's looking at his son, and how is he able to continue to take that next step? What is it that's driving him up the mountain? That's the question. What is it that gives you the ability to continue on this journey? How? I mean, have you ever been around somebody who's uh, walking through difficulty and you wonder, how are you doing it? How are you taking that next step? How are you even possibly continuing down this path following God when life has treated you the way that it has treated you? 
How are you continuing down this journey when it's as hard as it seems to be for you? How are you doing that? Well, the, the answer is found in verse 8. Uh, look at verse 8. It says this. Abraham responds, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So he says, God is the one that's going to provide. He's going to do it. God's going to do it. Essentially, what he's saying is, Isaac, I don't, I don't really know what's going to happen. The word that he uses here, the literal word for provide, is the Hebrew word that means to see or to see to it. And what he's saying is this, Isaac, you can't see physically. You can't see what the offering is. And I physically and emotionally can't see it. But I know that God's going to provide. God's going to do it. God will provide the lamb for the offering. No matter how hard this journey is, no matter how much I can't see it, I don't understand it, I'm not quite sure the destination that I'm heading to, but I know the one who called me to go. And he's always kept his promises. I think the wrestling match going on inside of him is similar to the wrestling match that I would have. How is it that God's going to fulfill this offering for the sins? I mean, something had to be sacrificed and yet also fulfill his promise that through Isaac, he would bless the entire world. Remember, Isaac doesn't have children at this point. He has no kids. So how is it that God is not going to be made himself a liar by not fulfilling his promise, but also remain just and, and offer something for the sacrifice of the sins? And so how is he going to be both just and gracious? How is he going to do that? Yeah, how is he going to keep that promise? That's what he's continuing to wrestle with. You see, for Abraham, he was able to climb up the mountain because he knew that God is both just and God is gracious. God will always keep his word and God will always provide a way. He didn't know where he was being called to, but he knew, he knew intimately the one who was calling him. You see, the answer to all of this is this. Abraham knew God. I mean, he really knew God. And he trusted that whatever happens, God's going to provide a way. I don't know what it's going to look like, but he's going to provide. I mean, look at verse 5. This is what I love about this. Look at verse 5. It says, then Abraham said to the young men that he had with him, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and we're going to worship. And he doesn't then say, and I will come back again to you. He says, and we'll come back to you again. See, Abraham had such a confidence that I don't know what's going to happen, but he's going to do it. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that he believed that even if God had to raise Isaac from the dead, God was going to provide a way for him and Isaac to walk off of that mountain. You see, you want to know how... Abraham was able to take the next step up the side of that mountain. It's because he knew the God who had called him to walk up that mountain. And that's exactly the God that shows up. Let's look at verses 9 through 14. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. This is an intense scene. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son, so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Now, what an incredible story. I, man, I'm every time I get to that passage, I get emotional because I, I think about what, what Abraham must have been experiencing. And yet, sometimes I miss out on the fact that Abraham knew God so intimately that he was able to move forward. It's the connection he had. 
And so in this series, we want to say, hey, how does this really point to Jesus? And so I want to be pretty direct before we get to the implications for us. Let's look at this. How does this point to Jesus? So the first thing is this. Abraham in the story, he pointed to Jesus. See, Abraham, uh, he pointed to Jesus. He answered the call of God to leave everything that was comfortable and to follow. He answered the call of God. You see, in, in Genesis 12, he built up a very comfortable life. He was a wealthy man. He was well known. And he left all of the comfort to go to a place in service of God. Likewise, likewise, he had been provided by God, this son he'd waited his whole life to have. Everything was good and right and had a place. And God said, I want you to go. If you look ahead to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, the apostle Paul tells us this about Jesus. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus, Philippians chapter 2 tells us, Jesus left the comfort of heaven for us to go, to follow. Abraham's journey up the mountain pointed to Jesus. It's an excruciating step after step up this terrible mountain. And the same thing is true in the life of Jesus. He too took step after step up uh, that mountain before he was crucified. Every single step on the way to the cross was excruciating and difficult, both physically but also emotionally and spiritually. And the same thing was true for Abraham. Matthew chapter 26, verse 39 says this. Going a little further, he fell on his face to the ground and he prayed. This is knowing what was coming before him. My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Meaning Jesus was honest about how he felt in the same way that Abraham was. God, I don't know what's going to happen. And just like Abraham did, Jesus did it even better than Abraham did. It pointed to him. And Jesus said, look, as much as this is difficult, not my will not be done, but your will be done. In our story, Isaac also points to Jesus. See, in the story, Isaac was being brought up a mountain to be sacrificed uh, for sins. He was to be a sin offering uh, for, for Abraham to God. And much like that, Jesus, too, was marched up a mountain to be a sacrifice for the sins of all people. Only when Jesus was being sacrificed, when the Father raised the knife over his head, the angel of the Lord did not intervene. The angel of the Lord did not stop him from plunging that knife deep into the heart of Jesus. He would wear a crown of thorns and become the sacrifice for our sins so that we, like in Genesis 22, could respond, uh, now I know, God, now I know that you love me because you have not withheld your son, your only son, from us. See, the question that you might wrestle with when you read a story like this is, hey, if I'm called to go, will I go? And you should. That's a great application. You might call, am I willing to give up everything uh, for God? And that, too, might be a great application for me this week that I would challenge you with is this. The question that kept jumping out to me as I read through this story over and over again this week was, do you know him, Rob? Do you really know God? See, for Abraham, he was so intimately connected to God that he knew that every step he took, God was going to provide. He knew that this is an excruciating journey that he was on. Every step was painful and hard, and yet he knew the God who called him to go to a place he didn't know where he was headed, but the God who called him, he knew that if he called him, he would provide for where he was headed. Do you trust Him the same way? That life might not be easy, it might not be good to you right now, and it might be difficult. Do you trust Him? Do you trust Him to provide for you and your family? Do you trust that He's always going to see you through? Do you trust that even though you can be honest like Abraham and Jesus, and man, God, this is so hard, do you trust that even though it's difficult, God, not my will, but Your will be done? Is that where you're at as well today? You see, the question might be, is He your non-negotiable? You see, for Abraham... God was the only one to be worshipped, the only thing worthy of his worship. 
He knew that everything pointed to him. You see, Abraham's story and Isaac's story and our story, our life, should point to Jesus. Why? Because he's the center of it all. He's what makes sense. He's the puzzle piece that makes everything else come together. Not because we're obligated to, not because we're pressed and forced to, but because we know that the God of grace and truth, that God will always keep his promises. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time in your word. We thank you for teaching us and shaping us and leading us and molding us. God, the last few weeks have been hard and painful. But we know the God who called us to take a step forward will provide for where we're headed. Father, we love you. Through the power of your Holy Spirit, would you help remind us that you and only you should be our non-negotiable, the only one worthy of our worship. We offer you all of this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. Have a great week. We look forward to seeing you here online again next week.